Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about a really cool resource that we're giving away with this series. We understand that spiritual growth can be really hard, and I personally get that even when you leave having heard one of my sermons with the best intentions to apply it to your life, turning those best intentions into real-life actions can be pretty difficult. And so with this series, we're giving away devotional sheets. These devotional sheets contain daily activities that will take about 10 minutes for you to complete. The activities are varied from day to day. One day has a devotional writing written by me, another has questions, another has guided prayer, and there's a few other things too. I really do think that these devotional sheets will help you to immerse yourself more fully in the passages of scripture that I'm preaching on in this series, and I hope that you will get a copy. You can get a copy by visiting one of our services, or for you online listeners, you can get one by going to wilsonville.church slash SOTM. That's wilsonville.church slash SOTM. The SOTM stands for Sermon on the Mount. Hey, again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I went back and listened to my sermon series introductions, like the first introduction of the Christmas series that we've recorded to like six years worth of of sermon series. And I'm a little embarrassed, but they're all basically the same thing. And I was like, wow, that is not original. I didn't even know I was doing this. I didn't mean to steal. I probably put way too much time into each of them. Uh, I should have just taken my notes from the year before and and gone like, hey, let's just say that again. And uh, and one of the things I, I almost always say is that it's really difficult to preach during the Christmas season. And I start like stressing about it in August because it's really difficult to be original and it's really difficult to uh, share anything that people don't know, haven't heard before. And that's because almost all over the world, you know, almost every person knows the Christmas story and they have an idea of why the Christmas story is important to Christians. I mean, it's about the birth of, of the one that Christians follow, right? And and so this year, I'm not going to begin with the same intro. I just want to start by saying, as I was thinking through that, what am I going to preach on? It seemed like in my mind, uh, hopefully from God, that I kept coming back to this idea of the Messiah. And this is a term that that we know if we've grown up in church circles, it comes up in our, our singing. There's a whole song called Jesus Messiah that we do fairly often at our church. Uh, it's something that we read in the Bible. We've heard this term Messiah. If you're not in the, in the Christian world, then maybe you haven't heard the term Messiah, but you've probably heard the term Christ, which is the Greek version of the word Messiah, meaning the same thing, pointing to the same stuff. But it's this really common word that we don't we don't really connect to much at all. Like for me, and and I'm I'm fairly educated in these things. I'm like like before studying for the series, there's no real connection, emotional, spiritual, uh, theological connection to the word Messiah. I knew it's a big deal. I know that we have some passages in the Old Testament 
that point to Jesus being the Messiah, and they're really helpful in proving that Jesus was a very important figure, and in fact, he was a figure that God had said would come for thousands of years. But beyond like these proof texts, like, hey, proving that Jesus is kind of who he said he was, I, I don't, until studying for this series, like have any you know, powerful, deep, important you know, thoughts behind this word Messiah. But at the beginning of Jesus' life, in one of the most famous passages of Scripture about the story, the, the birth of Jesus, it's a declaration of Jesus the Messiah. We're not going to talk about that passage of Scripture today. It won't even be in it. But it, in Luke 2, you know the story. Like, there's a group of shepherds who are out watching their flocks by night. That's what Luke tells us. And then an angel appears in the sky, and the angel declares to these people, today has been born in the town of Bethlehem, the Messiah. It's like the first thing that the angel says. And we gloss over that and read the next words, you know, like a savior. And, and as non-Jewish Christians, if you are one, you would have, you know, expected something like savior or Lord or king to be the first thing out of the mouth of the angel when declaring the birth of Jesus, who is our savior and Lord and king. But that's not what the angel says. And so I hope that, you know, that this is going to matter to you because what we're going to do over the next for Sundays is talk about what it means for Jesus to be uh, really the Messiah. And we're going to do that by looking at the beginning of the book of Matthew. There's this gospel book in the Bible called Matthew. And Matthew is a book more than any of the other gospels that is written to Jews. And it's written in order in large part to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And even more than that, to show them what the Messiah was really like. The beginning of the book starts like this, and you've probably just glossed right over it. You've probably never even thought about it, even if you've read Matthew, and a lot of you probably have read Matthew, have been around the church, because it's the beginning of the New Testament, and you get a New Year's resolution, you're like, I'm going to read through the New Testament, and then you get to Matthew, and, and so you've probably read this like 10 times as you've started the New Testament and stopped. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, more than almost any New Testament book, more than most New Testament books anyway, this first verse is just packed with meaning and importance because in large part it lays a foundation for, for everything that Matthew's going to say. I mean, the whole book of Matthew is, in some regard, support of this first statement. Matthew's saying, look, let me tell you the why I believe this to be true, and let me tell you how it proves true in the life of Jesus. This word genealogy translates a Greek word meaning origin, and it's interesting because there's some debate about whether that's a kind of a title for the whole book, or whether it's a title for the first two chapters of Matthew, or whether it's a title for the, the first chapter, the chapter that we'll cover in its entirety in this series of sermons. But because there's debate, you know, however you fall on that debate, it doesn't really matter. It shows how to the point this first phrase is that this is the origin, the beginning, the, the start of Jesus, the Messiah. He, he's looking at his Jewish audience and he's, he's writing for them and he's saying, look, I want you to know about the start. That's the birth story for him. The start of your Messiah, the one that you have been 
looking forward to. And even in the name of Jesus, I mean, we see this incredible meaning. It's from the Hebrew Yeshua. That was Jesus' real name. I hope it doesn't burst some bubble in your head where it's like, wait, he wasn't called Jesus? Well, he was Yeshua. And Yeshua is this name meaning God saves. That's really important, but we're going to kind of shelf it there because we'll spend a whole sermon talking about, about that because that's a name that was given by God. But these other titles, the first one, the Messiah. This is the, uh, the reason for this book in a lot of ways. The Messiah. And, and we have like little or no understanding of it at all. I, I remember preaching the book of Matthew. Um, I don't even think we ever finished. I think it's the last thing I did as a youth pastor. And we got somewhere in the middle of Matthew. And, and then I stopped preaching every week. Uh, but in preaching about the book of Matthew, you know, going through passage by passage, I felt for a while that all I was saying was, hey, look, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. It's like all of Matthew's stories, all of Matthew's major points, they all point back to this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's really important that we have an understanding of what that means. I mean, why did this guy named Matthew, an ex-tax collector, writing to a Jewish audience, being a Jew himself, why did he make such a big deal? Why did he go to such great lengths to say, look, this is the Messiah. It is. Like I said before, this is the word that you read is Christ in many New Testament translations. The NIV has, has made a movement to, to, to put it in as Messiah because it's, it's what they're really getting at when we read Christ in the New Testament. Um, it is not Jesus' last name, although we oftentimes use it like that. And in, in fact, the New Testament uses it like that oftentimes, just Jesus Christ. And what they mean when they do that is Jesus the, the Christ. Uh, when, you, when you use our Lord's name as a cuss word, uh, I think it's really important that you understand exactly what you're using as your swear word. Uh, and that is Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. It's a word that means anointed. In the Old Testament, interestingly, prophets, priests, and kings would be anointed. They were anointed with oil, and then that meant they were anointed in, in some special way for some special purpose. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is all three. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king, which is pretty cool because that job was spread out among sinners before Jesus came. But after Jesus came, he was the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus fulfills those roles, especially the role of priest. But here's the deal. It goes far beyond just being anointed, coming for a special purpose. The Messiah was the one that Jewish people had looked forward to for centuries upon centuries. They longed for someone, in a nutshell, that would come, that would reign in the line of David, that would sit on the throne of, of Israel forever and would make things absolutely right. He would be for them their salvation and their peace. He would bring them wholeness. He would set things right. The Life Application Commentary says, Matthew's Gospel harks back upon a long history of anticipation within Israel. His recounting elucidates how Jesus' life and ministry fulfilled the promise of the Old Testament prophets, but also shows how Jesus disappointed many of the misplaced expectations. And so here's what had happened through the centuries. God had promised someone who would come, who would reign, who would save, who would lead, who would change everything for them. 
And over time, they held tightly to that promise. And especially leading up to the birth of Jesus, there was a revival of this idea of the coming Messiah. In large part, they knew that it should happen soon because of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The religious leaders, the very religious leaders that did not like Jesus had had started a movement to get people to think about and be excited about the coming Messiah. But their expectations were misplaced. We see this throughout the reading of the gospel stories. They, they thought that the coming Messiah would start a military revolution. He'd overthrow the Romans. He would sit on a literal physical throne here on earth. And, and he would set things right in the city of Jerusalem. And they were kind of right in all of that. But they missed so much about the spiritual nature of the coming of Jesus. The Messiah is a huge deal, and, and we will, in the book of Matthew, not be able to touch on uh, even close to, to everything that, that the Jewish people looked forward to when they looked forward to the Messiah. But do not fret, we have written a devotional for you. And in this devotional, I'm so excited about this, we give away devotional booklets with a lot of our series, but this one in particular, I just think turned out so different and so unique, and, and I think that God laid something very different on my heart. And, and so what's in this devotional booklet here, and by the way, we're going to send out an electronic version later because we did a little Facebook vote and um, majority of people want an electronic version. And so we'll send that out later today. If we don't have your email address, go to creekside.me, subscribe and, and make sure that you get this electronic version. But we printed about 20 because some of you are older than me and, and you need a hard copy. Uh, but in this devotional booklet, what we've done is, is we've taken 18 passages from the Old Testament that Jewish people looked at when they thought about and they talked about the Messiah. Now, this isn't the passages of Scripture necessarily that the New Testament writers use when they look back at the Old Testament and say, look, look what it says about Jesus in the Old Testament. These are the passages that Jewish people before Jesus looked to. Some of them are very obscure. Some of them are not used by New Testament writers when they're talking about Jesus. But there are 18 passages that the Jews would have said, look, that's what the coming Messiah is going to, to do. And then there's, you know, 75 to 100 word uh, devotional entries that help us see why that's important to the life of Jesus. And so make sure that you get one electronically or physically. Um, but we're only going to scratch the surface in my sermons about what they longed for when they longed for Jesus. And the book of Matthew is written to say, look, I know that you had these great expectations. Let me, let me show you that Jesus really is the one you longed for. He really is, but maybe not in the way that you understood. I, I've likened it to this. If you could go back in time, like maybe go back 100 years, and, and somebody says, hey, for Christmas, I'm going to give you a present, and it is going to be uh, it's going to be a great source of entertainment. It's going to be super fun. Uh, you'll be able to play with it every day. You're going to have a great time with it. It's, a pl it's also something that you'll be able to share with friends. It'll even be a place that, that you get to meet friends in. It's going to be an incredible thing. And then, like, you know, fast forward maybe, you know, 40 years ago, and somebody said, look, the same present is going to be able to be your camera. It's going to be able to be your TV. It's going to be able to be like your, your place for all the movies and the music and the everything you ever thought of. You can use it as an instrument if you want to use it as an instrument. You'll be able to keep your calendar on it. You'll be able to call people on it. It's going to be 
stunning. And then, and, and then just like all of a sudden you got in a time machine or whatever and you didn't have any backstory and somebody hands you this. <laughs> With no explanation, you would be like, I've been lied to. That thing, like I'm going to go throw it in the trash. Uh, it has a little message here that I need to go practice my basketball shooting. But uh, like what in the, this is not a soccer ball. This is not a doll. This is not a camera. This is not a phone. This is nothing like I expected. This is nothing like you promised me. This is none of those things. But if somebody could sit with you and explain it to you, your eyes would be pretty open, right? Like, it's a pretty cool device. I'd take it over a soccer ball. I'd take it over a doll. I'd take it over a camera, most cameras anyway. I would take it over a music player, uh, like an iPod, if you were to go back just, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. And this, this is what the book of Matthew is. It's looking at these Jewish people and saying, look, I know what you expected, and I want you to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of those expectations. But let me explain to you how he did it in a far better way than you could have ever expected, ever. That's what he's saying when he says, look, this is your Messiah. He is the one that you have longed for, the one that God has promised, the, the one that, that you believe is going to fulfill all of your expectations. It just maybe didn't come in the way that you expected it to come. And these other two titles get right to that point as well. He, he calls Jesus the son of David. This is a messianic title in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. It's funny that 7-11, 7-11 through 16, uh, God through a prophet named Nathan tells David, you will have a king reign in your lineage, in your line, and he will reign forever. You will never, the nation of Israel will never fail to have somebody in your line on the throne. And so when we read son of David here, it's clear what, what Matthew is saying to his people. He's saying, look, this is... This is the king who is going to reign our people, the Jewish people, forever, over the Jewish people forever. This is the king that you have long expected. This is the one uh, that, that you thought of when you thought of David's son or grandson or great-great-grandson coming and, and being our leader and setting things right. I want you to know that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew uses the name David 17 times in his gospel. It's more than any other New Testament book. And it's because he wants the Jewish people to understand that this Jesus, who was born at the Christmas season, this Jesus is the king that they had longed for. And saying this, this is so important, because I think as, as non-Jew, if you're not a Jew, uh, if you're not a Jew, we especially can be so quick to dismiss the importance of the Jewish people, the place and the role of the Jews in the history of our faith, the Christian faith. We, in fact, wrongly think, and the Bible never paints this picture, that when Christianity came, we deviated away from Judaism. But what the Bible says, written by a bunch of Jewish guys, is when Jesus came, the Jewish faith deviated from the religion that they had held to forever and ever. The people who missed Jesus as the Messiah, they're the one that left the right path. And we've just continued down the line of religion that, that we've held to for thousands and thousands of years. If you were to tell John or Matthew or Paul or Peter, hey, we're not 
in the Jewish faith, we're in the Christian faith, they would say, wait a minute, no. You're Christians because you have stuck with the Jewish faith, and Jews that have missed the Messiah are no longer part of our faith. And so in writing Son of David, Matthew is saying, I want you to all understand that this is the Jesus that was promised to, to reign in the line of David. This is a Jesus that has come for the Jews. But he also says son of Abraham, which is so important to, to us who aren't Jews. This may have been another messianic title, but in Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, God has this conversation with one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. His name was Abraham. And God says, look, through you, there's going to be many nations, and they are going to be blessed. God looks at Abraham and says, look, there's going to be a special nation that comes out of your heritage, out of your lineage, through your genealogy. But I also want you to know that your descendants, the nations of the world, are going to be blessed through your line. And when Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, what he is saying is Jesus didn't come just to rule and reign and save and help the Jewish people. He came to rule and reign and save all people. He says, this is the Messiah of the Jews, but I need you to understand, and we see this throughout the book in Jesus' relationship to non-Jewish people, this is also the Messiah for the Gentile people, for those who aren't Jews. What Matthew needs us to hear is, is simply that when we think about Jesus as the Messiah, when we think about Jesus at all, we need to understand that he has come not just for a certain group of people, but he has come for all people. And, and then he switches to this genealogy that's so interesting. Because in this genealogy, he, he just shows us what he's already said. This is a Jesus. This is a Messiah for all people. Let me prove it through his lineage. Now, we as Americans don't care about our family lines very much. I happen to grow up in a family um, that does care about our family lineage. But but I know for a lot of people, like the idea of going to the library and searching out your genealogy is, is not that exciting. I think there's been a little bit of a revival in that through DNA testing. And so maybe people have taken a little more of an interest because there's marketing pushes for us to take an interest in, you know, who our, our grandparents were or whatever. Um, but we kind of live in a culture where family background is not nearly as important as how you excel at the American dream. Does that make sense? But for the Jewish people, it was all about your family background, how successful you were, how uh, you could serve in the country, um, what land you were able to possess. All of these things were driven by a person's genealogy. If you could not prove your Jewish lineage, then you would not, were not able to access God through the temple in the same way as people who could prove their Jewish lineage. You could not be a priest and go into the presence of God if you were not a Jew. And so when Matthew opens up this genealogy, writing to Jews, he's saying something probably more important than we'll ever be able to hold on to. He's, he's proving Jesus as the Messiah, but he's teaching them things about the Messiah as he goes through this genealogy. Now here's the part as Americans that's most bothersome. Matthew's genealogy is not driven by historical completeness. And we just, like, 
I'm telling you, for me, it's like if you're going to write down a genealogy, then the only good and right reason to write down the genealogy is that you're going to make it historically complete. But Jewish people did not care about the historical completeness of their genealogies. They just wanted them to summarize whether or not a person was in the right line or not. That's all that needed to happen. And oftentimes they were made short and they were made symmetrical in order that people could memorize their genealogies. Talking about a culture that is driven by uh, oral history. And, and so for them, memorization was very important. And so with those kind of two things in mind, uh, oh, and one other thing I should just mention, that there's the census that actually takes uh, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, to Bethlehem. You remember that part of the story? They ride a donkey. Uh, I don't even know if the donkey's in the real story, but they, they ride a donkey on every nativity movie that's ever existed. They are going to Bethlehem because of Joseph's lineage. That's where they needed to get. And so even the Roman government that was ruling and reigning over the Jews took seriously the genealogy of the people under their care. And so then Matthew jumps into this genealogy. I'm not going to read all of it today. I'm just going to read a couple of portions. But in Matthew 1, 3 through 6, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, that's just a lot of names, pretty boring. You've probably skipped it before. But they're such intriguing names. As, as Matthew writes this genealogy to these Jewish people, he includes these names that are totally unexpected, they're very interesting. They're names of people that we know the stories of from the Old Testament, but they're not the people for the most part that you would have picked to include in a genealogy. And this is perhaps most clear in Matthew's inclusion, and you may have heard this before in sermons, his inclusion of women in the story. Jewish genealogies for the most part did not include women. Um, we're blessed to live in a time where where women are seen as equal to men, even if we don't think they're always treated as such. Uh, they are seen, and, and we believe that they are equal to men in their value and their worth and all that. But for most cultures historically around the world, that hasn't been the case. We can thank Jesus for that, in fact. We can thank this genealogy a little bit for that. But Matthew includes these four women. And it's so unique and so strange and so unexpected that you just have to. I mean, it's just begging you to ask the question, why? Why are these women mentioned? And then you look at their lives and you're like, wait, what? Like, like here's something just staggering about this passage of Scripture. At least two of them are Gentiles, not Jews. Maybe three of them, and some would argue that all four are Gentiles. That means they're not Jewish people. This is, when you're writing to a Jewish audience and you're saying, look, this is the genealogy of our Messiah, the one in the line of David, to include these women who are Gentiles that weren't even supposed to get into the bloodline of the Jews. God had commanded that there was no intermarriage between Jew and Gentile, and here they are littering, in some people's minds, I'm sure, this genealogy. 
But, but even more than that, um, perhaps, is that these women are all connected to sexual sins in some ways, stories that would be almost unmentionable stories you would like to forget about. I mean, Rahab was a prostitute, and uh, Ruth, you know, shouldn't have been brought into the family line. I mean, she was, uh, she was a she was in a tribe of people that you were not supposed to marry at all, like you were cursed to the 10th generation if you were in that tribe. And, and we, we see that uh, Uriah's wife, who is this terrible story of David having an affair with one of his greatest rulers, wives, wives and, and I mean, the whole thing is sorted. It's like, how, how is this in here? How is this in here? And it's so clear, I think, what what Matthew is getting at. This Messiah, this Jesus, whose birth I'm about to tell you about, he didn't come for Jew, he didn't come for Gentile, he didn't come for those who are not tainted by sin, he didn't come for man or woman, he came for all of us. came for all of us. But in that... Notice that David's name is said twice. He came for all of us. And, and for some Jews, they would have said, like, wow, that lowers his value or his importance or his worth. He's like, hey, don't forget, in the midst of him coming for all of us, he is, he is king. He, he is king for all. David, David, only name that said twice. He wants our minds to go back to this idea that he is the one who rules and reigns on the throne of David. He is king. And, and what can be so hard for us, like it, I think it was for the Jews to grasp, to, to take a hold of, to think about, is that it doesn't matter what, what, what people believe. It doesn't matter what people, what kind of families people grew up in. If they grew up in the church or out of the church, it doesn't matter if people were male or female. If they grew up in a, in a country that is not Christian by nature, it doesn't matter because Jesus, the one who was born when we celebrate Christmas, that Jesus is king of all people. All people. And then in one seven he starts this this other thing where he mentions these kings and these kings every other one of them is good. I mean, good you know is a relative term, but like good king, bad king, somebody that served God, somebody that served little stones uh, that we call idols. I mean, somebody that that held to moral standards of God, somebody who completely rejected the moral standards of God, somebody that tried to get people to worship God, somebody that tried to get people to worship false gods, and and there's this back and forth nature of these kings. And Matthew just comes right out of it, right out with it. And it would have been easy for Matthew. I've already mentioned that the historical completeness not important. It would have been easy for Matthew to say, well, this king and this king and this king. He could have hit like David and Solomon, who was decent, and then Hezekiah, you know, and Josiah. He could have hit these kings that were good. But he just gives it to us. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king. All in the lineage of Jesus. And it's so clear. I mean, there's... I just don't think there's any way to see it another way. Like, you just can't. Like, Matthew is communicating to us the universal reign of Jesus. He is king of all the good and the bad. Now, what this is often preached at, is, and, and this is important and it's good, and we see this in so many places in the gospel, but it's not what Matthew's getting at, is like, hey, no matter how sinful you are, it's okay. God still loves you. That's absolutely true. But this is really what it's saying 
It doesn't matter how sinful you are. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter what family you've come from. It doesn't matter how much you've rejected God. Jesus is still your king. It's your choice whether you worship him, whether you believe that he's actually the Messiah, whether you, you, you give your life to him. That's your choice. But Jesus is still king. He's the one that should be obeyed because he rules and reigns over all. He is king of kings and lord of lords, as is said in other places. And in the midst of this genealogy, we also see this other thing. That he was going to reign and be king no matter how many people, no matter how much people tried to mess it up. The plans of God to bring the Messiah in the world could, could not be thwarted by the evil of humanity. God was faithful to his promises to bring a new good king. And man, as I wrote this devotional booklet, just to see how different the Jews expected Jesus to be as a king and a ruler and, and one who would reign than, than what we think of when we think of people who rule and reign. I mean, one who would, who would reign in righteousness and holiness and with absolute wisdom and with absolute goodness and who would not reign based on, on whether or not people could give them something and offer them something that would rule fairly over all people, no matter what. It's inspiring to think about all that the reigning, the coming reigning king would be. And, and, and Matthew says, through it all, God faithfully was moving to bring you this king who reigns over you even if you don't like him. Even if you don't think you're part of his kingdom, even if you're not part of his spiritual kingdom, he is still your king. It's incredible. The life application commentary again says, the genuineness and unlikeliness of this genealogy must have stunned Matthew's readers. Jesus' ancestors were humans with all the foibles yet potentials of everyday people. God worked through them to bring about his salvation. D.A. Carson says, good or evil, they were part of Messiah's line. For through, though grace does not run in the blood, God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. You might think that just rejecting Jesus means that he's no longer your king. You might think that, that trying not to think about God makes him not your king. You might be a Christian who thinks, if I just only focus on Jesus as my savior, then I don't have to live the way that he's called me to live. He's still your king. He rules and he reigns. And the only question is, will you serve him well? Will you serve him well? What's so cool about this king is he came to serve. And what Matthew will tell us at the end of his book is that Jesus came as king, but he also came to die. He came to suffer and die because he saw that the world was sinful, was full of sinful people, and he died on your behalf. And I don't think that we can understand or appreciate or, or grasp how incredible it is that Jesus was hung on a cross if we don't remember that as soon as he was born, even before he was born, while he lived in eternity, he was king. It wasn't, some, it wasn't only some peasant 
Jewish carpenter man that hung on the cross. It was our king. It was our king. And then in 116, Matthew like flips this language on its head. We'll talk a lot about this in the coming weeks. But he says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. There are two major and, and so clear uh, linguistic changes here. Uh, in this passage, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, there are 40 occurrences of this verb, gneo, and, and it's the word that is translated in the NIV was the father of, or if you know this story in the King James, which probably a lot of people do, begat, like he begat him and he begat him and he begat him. And every single time except for one, it's in the active tense of the verse. That means uh, like, I go, I go. It's not a great English example, but it's the first one that came right, I go. And then all of a sudden it, it goes to the passive. And it, it's just crystal clear what Matthew is saying to us. These human leaders, these humans that you know, they were the active agents in the birth of their children, except for one time. And that's when Mary and Joseph had a baby. And this was not just a human effort. This was, this was God's effort. It's what they call the divine passive. God stepped into humanity and said, it's time for me to do something. And in the birth of Jesus, we see something that is not just human, but something that is divine. It's supernatural. And what is supernatural about it is that it is a virgin birth. We'll talk about that next week. But the reason that's important is because, again, what is being said to us in this genealogy in these first 17 verses is simply, God, in the person of Jesus, has brought the Messiah, the coming king, to earth. This is the fulfillment of the promises that you have desperately desired to have fulfilled. And Matthew, just one more shot at it. He wants to give you one more. He says, thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. It's funny, this won't matter to us, but it just emphasizes all that I've said this morning. 14 is, is David's uh, name. It's the numerical value. We're like, what is that? The Jewish people had this system where, where names and calculating the numbers of the names with their alphabet would, would give you a number. And it's a very important number for people. Uh, you can look at, at the book of Revelation and see some of this. The, the, the name Nero is the numerical value 666. And the name of Jesus is 777. And it's clear uh, what this book is trying to tell us, right? Saying something, using these numerical values that Jewish people would have understood, but we <laughs> don't care about it all. But it's Matthew's parting shot to the genealogy. One more time, I want to remind you one more time. Look at how I've laid forth this genealogy. It all points to King David. And by the way, isn't it cool? that it just happens to line up to the numerical value of his name. Jesus is the Messiah. And as Messiah, he is king of all. So I want to leave you with this, this simple thought this morning, and maybe you've never thought about it, whatever, but the, the Christmas story, the origin of the birth of Jesus, the origins of the Messiah, 
It's a story that says to us, no matter how sinful we've been, no matter how far we've drifted from God, no matter what family we come from, no matter how much we've disbelieved in the past, no matter who or where we came from, no matter whether we like church or don't like church, Jesus was born the Messiah, and the Messiah was born king of all. Jesus is your king, whether you know it or not. Let me pray that you'll serve him. Lord Jesus, man, I thank you that, and, and you're the only, God, you're the only uh, inspiration behind any book that, that I've ever felt this about, but there's so much meaning in just a genealogy and such simple words. God, it's incredible. It's an incredible job that I have where I can I can just look at your word and see how multi-layered and how valuable it is at every turn, God. And I thank you for this first 17 verses of the book of Matthew that show us that when we think about the Messiah, we should think about King. And that when we think about your birth, Jesus, we should think this is the birth of my King. And I pray, God, that we who are in this room, the people that will listen online, that we would treat you as King, Lord. I am shocked by how quickly and easily people reject you. God, as I mentioned earlier, people use your name as a swear word. And when they do that, it is crystal clear that they, have, they don't believe or they don't understand or that they don't know that you're not, that you are their king, God, that you are their king. And so I pray for us, God, that, that when we think about you, we would think about how you rule and you reign at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And God, we who are Christians in this room, so often our sins come from a place where we have forgotten your kingly reign. We look at you and we think, yeah, that's my Savior. But we don't look at you and say, he's also my king. I think, God, that the American church has done a very poor job as, as, of reflecting you as king. We have talked about you as Savior, which is so good and so important, but we have forgotten, Lord, that you are the one that should be feared, that you are the one that should be obeyed, God, that you are the one that we should follow with all of our lives. And I know, God, that when sin trickles into me, it's because I've forgotten how much respect you deserve. And I pray, God, that as we celebrate this Christmas and we think through the book of Matthew and we have been presented this morning with you as the king of all, God, that we, as I said just a minute ago, would we'll, we'll treat you as such, whether that means somebody taking a serious look at whether they should give you their lives because they're not Christians, or that's us, God, who are Christians, taking a serious look at how we're living in obedience to you, at how we're respecting you, God, how we pray when we pray, whatever it might be, Lord. God, help us to remember that you are king of all and let us worship and live for you in light of that truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.